Good morning and welcome to Start the Month. Um, today we're going to be talking about the mental health of our workforce. And in the room with me is Dr. Claire Garada, Professor Alan Simpson, Niall Dixon, and as usual, our roving reporter, Adrian James. Uh, now first, a bit of an update from June. Um, we had the Women and Equality Select Committee uh, importantly talking about the mental health of men and boys. For those who can't quite remember, um, boys in particular have high rates of ADHD, conduct disorder, uh, both strongly associated with the later development of antisocial personality disorder, but also men have a very high suicide rate. So they're very interested in this and they will be publishing a report later in the year. Um, now, we have also had the NHS Confederation Annual Conference. Niall, what was that like? You opened it. Um, I, I, th I think it was a, a, a useful occasion to bring together the system at a particular moment. So this was really the first time, I think, since the, the long-term plan where most of the system had got together. And I think it was interesting to test that temperature and that is reflected in quite a lot of work that we've done with our members and I think it was evident at the conference which is there is I think a degree of unanimity around the direction which the long-term plan sets and uh, a determination to attempt to deliver it but I think that that is cautioned by some real concerns about the pressures that the service are currently under and the prospective pressures given demographic and other changes and particular concern obviously around the funding of areas such as social care and public health um, and capital. So these things that actually on the front line still make such a difference and a, and a bit of a fear that the political class will have concluded the NHS has got its, it's, got its cake the rest of the public sector probably think we've eaten all the cake yes. and I think there is a real tension there. So uh, it was a kind of mixed view. I, on the one hand I think there is genuine optimism, there is a belief uh, both within the mental health sector about the, the improved status of mental health and recognition of it and I think there's gen, genuine pleasure around that um, and, and with the rest of the system I think a, a feeling that the move towards more integrated collaborative however difficult it is, is definitely the way forward. But I think, as I say, counseled with the fact of have we actually got the resources to be able to change the models of care within the time frame that we need to do it in order to bring about the transformation. I think that's the, the, the question that hangs in people's minds. Absolutely. Now, and that's very much at the heart of what we want to talk about today. So the long-term plan across the board says, let's have more staff. We've got to translate this, this 20.5 billion into goodness knows how many uh, new staff. Now, if we go back um, to 2017, we had the Thriving at Work report, uh, and that highlighted the cost of absenteeism, presenteeism, and the fact that um, if we invested significant amounts of money in the mental health of our workforce, we'd get a very, very, very good return. Now, um, if we're going to expand up the workforce, it strikes me that we either train more people, um, we retain more people, or we help the people we've got perform better. Um, all of which I would think would be helped by close attention to their mental health. So I'm pleased to kick off with 
Claire, your medical director of the Practitioner Health Programme, uh, clinical chair of the NHS National Assembly, former chair of the RCGP, and on so many boards, I, I can't count them at the moment. Um, tell, us, tell us your perspective on the mental health of the medical workforce. Well, it's not very good at the moment, actually. I mean, wherever you look, you see uh, demoralised, depressed and despairing doctors. I, I, clearly, it's not all like that, but you get that impression looking at all the reports that are currently being published. We think that probably about 7 to 8% of the current medical workforce is currently depressed, uh, and about 25 to 30% of the medical workforce has had a diagnosis of depression. So it's pretty it's higher than the general population. We also know, unlike you talked about boys and suicide, the only group where the there are equal numbers of suicide for men and women is medicine. So women have between, so right. women have between two to five times the rate of suicide compared to their male counterparts. So it's the only group where you get equal. Now it could be access to drugs, but it isn't quite that because it's access to drugs accounts only for the, the, the anaesthetists and, and, and emergency doctors on the whole. There are real issues for women in medicine not least t touched on the gender pay gap, the issue, the fact that women tend to have two jobs, the job in the at work and the job afterwards. So I look after sick doctors. We've got about 8,000 sick doctors that have passed through our, our books. Uh, they range from doctors with anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. We've got probably now the largest cohort of doctors with bipolar disorder. We have about 200 doctors and about 400 doctors that have had some sort of addiction issue and then we've got a whole mix which I have to say to those listening to this are almost entirely work related so we pick up bullying, institutional racism, poor handling of complaints, really poor use of sanctions such as uh, suspensions, gardening leave, processes where there's a what we call collusion of anonymity nobody in a trust wants to take responsibility so what they do is call yet another meeting with yet more people uh, and yet and ask for yet more assessments without actually knowing uh, where the end point is so uh, it, it's it's a you know, mental health and workforce isn't very good uh, we've also seen a, a rise probably suicides we don't know because we don't collect the data but there's probably about every three to four weeks a doctor kills himself and uh, clearly not all of that is work related but if you lift up the bonnet as I do a lot of those doctors have got some sort of work related issues such as a complaint or a referral to the regulator. Now the practitioner health service that you, that you run um, has it's now been running for about 10 years yes um, it's uh, now been, uh, it's going to be expanded across the, the rest of the health service. Um, no. lots, of lots of people are saying, what about nurses? Mm. <laughs> it's not going to be expanded across the rest of the health service. It's going to be expanded across England to all doctors, sadly, not to the rest of the workforce, sadly. Uh, so at the moment, it's only London for all doctors and for GPs, it's across the whole of England. From about October, it will be all doctors in England, though there will be a staggered rollout. What about nurses? Absolutely right. There are lots of issues with nurses, of course. There's 600,000 nurses, so by the time you have a, a special service for nurses, you, you might as well have a special service really for the whole of the NHS workforce. I think, 
we need a special service for the whole of the NHS workforce. I think those who work in the NHS should have fast access to psychological treatment. I think those who have addiction problems in the NHS, who work in the NHS, should have a, a specialist service where they can go in confidence. And I think we need to be looking at some of the special groups within the NHS workforce, particularly nurses, frontline nurses, but also paramedics, who are, are suffering considerably from, from the roles they do. So. Yes, but maybe, Tim, in your role, you can lobby for more resources. Well, I mean, one of the things that I, I... There is no reason at all why a trust can't start to develop some of these things themselves to look they, after their own work. They can, of course they can, and many do have employer assistance schemes, but they tend to be mixed. Staff don't know they exist. They, they're usually only telephone advice services. But And there are some very good trusts which I've picked up who will, for example, provide a confidential service of those with addiction. But you've got to be a rare trust to, to do that. Yeah. Uh, and on the whole, I hate to say this, but trusts still treat those with mental illness as if they're deviant schoolchildren and uh, need to be not necessarily punished, but certainly pushed away and, and that, they're, that, they're, they're, that they're not beaten. Nurses, doctors, whoever, are not treated with the same compassion that, that they're expected to treat their own patients. Trust can do something. I think, personally, every trust should have a non-executive director whose sole responsibility is to work with the executive to improve the well-being of the workforce. Okay. Now, um, I want to bring in um, Professor Alan Simpson, um, Professor of Mental Health Nursing. Um, what's, what's your view on this? Well, first of all, I very much agree with Claire that there does need to be much greater support for, for mental health nursing and nursing staff in, in the NHS. But as she also touches on, the numbers are large, and so the implications of that are, are, are massive for the service. And I think that's why we really need to emphasise prevention rather than waiting until people are cracking up. Well, go on, tell us. Um, what, what, what so we know from surveys by the RCN that uh, 46% of nurses said they are exhausted and negative due to the poor staffing levels, 45% feel they're demoralised. We know that this has an impact on patient care, care le is left undone, fundamental care is left undone. Most importantly though, that pressure on people through the poor staffing levels uh, demoralises people. They know what they should be doing, they know what they want to do and what they want to provide and they can't because they're working on, uh, on wards or in teams which are understaffed. We've lost over 4,000 nurses to 2009. On current projections, um, my colleague Dave Mundy in uh, the union says that at the rate of recruitment at the moment for mental health staff, it'll take us till December 2039 to get back up to the mental health staffing levels that we had in 2009. This is wow. ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. I just so just at the point at which we're, which you just yeah. up, we're we're we're, we're, we're way behind. We're, we're way. in a negative, so massively, state. massively important to keep the people we've got and keep them well. I just want to talk to you briefly about a, a young man I met this week. He was a former student of ours at uh, City University. He's in his first year working in the health service. He's a bright, thoughtful, reflective, very good young mental health nurse. On his first ward, he was attacked three times. Okay. And that, but that's just, I just want to read something that he, he wrote. I met with him this week, we had a long conversation, he's put something in writing and he's going to try and sort of publish this. Uh, so aside from the attack and aside from the lack of support that he got after that, and it's worth saying, this is in one of our betterment health trusts in the country. He said, I've had my first experiences of being the only nurse on shift, 
being nurse in charge of a team very short of staff, coordinating multiple advanced observations, calling a medical emergency, de-escalating de racial, homophobic and sexist abuse, initiating and terminating seclusion, administering rapid tranquilisation under restraint. Underlying all of this is the ultimate responsibility for patient life and the safety of your colleagues. On top of this is the demand to complete various forms of digital and physical paperwork, both measurable and audited organisational requirements and QI initiatives. Before all of this is the passion to spend time with patients, building therapeutic relationships through whichever planned or unplanned fatic or emphatic interactions occur. Despite all of this and what never stops is the desire to do all of this well. Okay, now, so this is a man who is, is struggling to make sense of all this and come to terms with all this. He's in his first placement, he's in charge. He's sometimes the sole qualified nurse on the shift. Well, this, this is pretty inexcusable. We wouldn't expect this of, of anyone in any other setting. So we need to do a lot more about how do we support the staff we've got. Most mental health nursing staff do not even get basic supervision. The, 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 the numbers people talk about it equates to something like an, an hour over a year. It's just totally flawed and inadequate. It's not taken seriously. There are other professions where they, where they vigorously demand and protect their clinical supervision because they know how important it is to make sure they're reflecting and continuing to do good practice. And, and we don't guarantee that from mental health nursing staff. That's the absolute So we should do. We should the do. absolute basic. Yeah. yeah. There are initiatives going on. So in South London and Morsley, I'm hearing about them using um, short 15-minute reflective practice sessions at the ends of shifts. These are guided reflective sessions. They are helpful. They help people think about what's gone on during that shift, what the impact it's had on them. It also helps them leave it behind when they, when they leave that shift. That doesn't replace clinical supervision, but that, that, that's something that can help. Okay, that's, that, that sounds good. Can I j just bring in Niall Dixon, who, as I'm sure everybody knows, Chief Executive of the NHS Confederation and former GMC Chief Exec and Registrar, and before that, the King's Fund. Indeed, yes. Yeah. yes. Okay. Now, um, what 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 do we what do you think medical? We've got medical directors, chief execs, some directors of nursing down down the phone. What should they be doing about this? We've got we've got doctors who you know who are clearly uh, they've got eight thousand just from London, ten percent of which have got severe problems. We've got nurses working in very very complex uh, sort of environments, particularly on inpatient units. What what should they do? Well, I suppose the first comment that might be made by an external observer is, is this an example of the vet's dog? Because this is mental health, the mental health sector, and are you looking after your, your own staff right. in a way that you, you would expect? I think, um, of course, you can look at the, the glass half full, half empty, and there's lots of half full around. So I, I think you have to be very careful about this. There are examples of really good practice uh, around the place and I think the key point is how do we level up the degree to which this is a burning platform I think it's already been well illustrated the reality is you're not going to be able to solve the staffing crisis just by recruitment we need to change who we recruit we need to get people ironically under the stress business to work at the top of their licenses because not all of them are doing that and above all we need to find ways to retain so it's not just we can harangue government or central ALBs or whatever about the tap how do we get the tap right I think there's a lot more work that can be done 
locally at regional level in terms of getting systems right to start working with higher education institutions to train the people that employers actually think they need going forward and that will require different kinds of professionals um, and it will require increasing adaption of the existing professionals to do different things uh, in, in different ways. But we also need to look at the plug. You can't just look at the tap. And there are ex there is variation across the country. So you ask, what would I do? And yep. it's very easy to sit in the kind of job I'm doing, pontificating. And I know how hard this stuff is. But I first of all, we'd start and say, well, let's look at the metrics within our own organisation. So what are the absence of sickness rates? What, what do our staff say? And you can get very detailed stuff on this in terms of the GMC survey, but there's also the, the bigger surveys done by the NHS. What are our staff saying about bullying and what are they saying? And, you know, the reality is across the service, we've got a one in four, one in four of our staff are saying they've experienced bullying um, of some kind. That's a terrible statistic. It, it is a terrible statistic. And, and I, so there is something about what, what so if, 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 you're, if you're responsible for an institution, what are your absence of sickness rates? What's bullying? What is the retention rate? How does your retention rate compare with similar organisations? Or better still, how does it compare with the best? And how can we get to that? that best. Now there may be circumstances that individual organisations will work, the kind of services they're running, all that is there too. What's the level of clinical engagement? The clinical engagement score is an absolutely significant issue I think for doing that and where are you on the well-led domain? So there are a whole series of things I'm sure uh, there are others more expert than me. So I, I would begin by looking at the metrics and then saying what are examples around the country? Mercy Care is a very good example. It does a fantastic amount of work on suicide prevention, interventions, not just the 24-hour phone line, but actually interventions that, that can support staff, both in terms of preventing problems and then in supporting staff who, who may be in stress, stressful situations. I do agree with this business of reflective practice. I think it's absolutely true in medicine and the squeeze is absolutely on medicine in spite of people making a lot of noise about it um, and in, in nursing there's far too, far too little of it. So um, I think there are things that you can do locally and I know a lot of people listening will be doing this sort of stuff but I think doing it as a comprehensive programme, I agree with Claire, having a non-exec who's obviously working with an exec to actually make sure that the board considers this issue, looks at the metrics and say okay, these are red areas or even yellow areas, how do we get to green across all these domains? So, so give, I think it's possible. Given the pressure that the long-term plan is, is producing, I mean, this, this could be an absolute key. It is key. It is I key. Mean, Tim, it's, and, uh, you know, the reason I work so hard and get myself on all these boards is to try and bring about the change. So, for example, let's take one of my pet hates, mandatory training. We currently spend about 30 to 40 hours each per NHS staff working out which fire extinguisher to use and then promptly forgetting it. I think we should be replacing mandatory training with mandatory reflective practice mm. and do your training in inverted commas in a peer group, support group. So if we have a child protection issue, which we, by the way, discuss every week anyway in our team meetings, we discuss it. If we have to, in the very rare events in general practice, do a resuscitation, we discuss what it meant, we, we, how we cope. We don't do, as I found myself, doing an awful online 
um, I'm going to train on child protection, looking at child bruises, talking about sexual assaults in a baby, thinking, how has it turned into this? When I know adult learning is about dialogue with my peers. So I think we, or trusts, need to be brave. I think if it takes the workforce, if it does small things well, then I think it will start to improve the well-being of its staff. If it starts to bring in Schwartz rounds, if it starts to do these reflective practice groups, Suicide prevention, I think, is right at the top end. And actually what I'm worried about in issues is it's the tick box. We've done suicide prevention. Rather than you might have lost your, your wife or your husband from a heart attack, has the chief executive sent you a card to say, I'm terribly sorry. That is suicide prevention, not the tick box. And my concern about the NHS is we always go massive and do these competency frameworks and, every, and then it's a tick box and then it gets included in to yet another mandatory Yeah, thing. I mean, the, the, the suicide thing, important, no doubt. Problem is you can't really measure it. No, of course you it's, can't measure it. Suicide is a very rare event. And yeah. I, I think and suicidal thoughts are very, very common. Uh, I found a paper that showed that 70% of surgeons have had a suicidal thought in the last six months. Just on the suicide, there is something we can do which would be very preventative and helpful, and it's also useful for our patients, which is about encouraging staff to develop safety plans. So this is something as Cole King promotes, and she does some great work on this. And this is her idea that all of us are susceptible at some time in our lives to suicidal thoughts and, and ideas. And actually, we should all have a plan in place to think about what will we do if we're feeling things are getting on top of us, who are we going to turn to, what things will help us get through it. And we can think about putting that together ourselves. But it's also an incredibly useful thing to do uh, with our service users. But, but the problem is, if the system has suspended you for some trivial issue, that it's then delaying, not giving you your rights because you're not formally suspended, which I th- which is still happening, no amount of putting in a suicide plan is going to address the fact you're losing your income, you might lose your home, you might need to, 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 to be borrowing large sums of money. Clearly, we've got to prevent suicide, but actually... I think we need to be addressing the real issues that are going on today by the people listening to this podcast, by the people that around this table even, that are in our gift to change. And that is addressing kindness, addressing the complaints process, making sure we give us effective feedback, providing time for people to reflect. Your poor nurse who was assaulted. My God, if that was my son who's a social exactly. worker who'd exactly. been assaulted it's three times, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, I think all the things that Nile touched on are absolutely right. It's about creating a culture in, the, in your organisation. It's about creating a culture where you value people, whether that's your service users or your staff. It's valuing people and it's involving them in helping come up with those solutions. Some great, there is great work going on out there. There's lots of trust doing really, really good things, QI projects and various things. But at the heart of that, very often, is actually working with people to say, what, what would be helpful here? And, and I think probably the issue within boards is the recognition. It's a bit like EDI work more generally. It, it, it's, not just, it's not just a moral imperative. It's actually a business imperative. Mm-hmm. EDI. Uh, equality and diversity. Oh, inclusion. Um, sorry. I'm stuck in that criminal line. <laughs> um, so, you know, because, again, people thought of equality and diversity as something that is a sort of good to do, nice to whatever. But actually now people are recognising from your board downwards if you want to be an effective organisation there's quite a lot of research around this then 
you have to do this stuff and you have to do it in a very different way from the way that it's been done in the past. I think this is equally the case that uh, this is a business imperative given the hemorrhaging of staff, given the lower productivity that you will get if you don't do this, then you have to change the way in which you organise. And some of that comes from the top. It's not just about identifying five values, sticking them on a, a board. I mean, I've certainly seen on uh, long-term uh, a long-term board for older people where there was the kind of peeling yeah. appealing bit of paper that had our values yeah. but you watched there was frankly a group of nurses who were all busy chattering to each other and who spoke to I had a relative in at the time who spoke to him in the wrong year because he was completely deaf in that year had no idea who he was what his background was or anything else he was just a thing yeah. to be dealt with so you can have the stuff stuck on yeah. the board the question is how do you bring it alive and that in a sense, the problem there was not actually those individual nurses. It was the leadership of that ward, mm -hmm. and it was the leadership of the, the team, and it was leadership of the wider thing. So it runs through the whole organisation. Signals have to come from the top. And then you have to be honest and recognise that even within a good trust, it's probably even, if you look at a school, a school's got, you may have a good maths department, not very good French department. On the whole, it's a similar <coughs> institution. It's easier to get the culture right across the whole thing. If you're running... A mental health trust which can have x number of sites vast numbers of departments different professional groups dominating in different places changing that culture is actually much but, more but of a challenge yeah. I, i'm always struck by uh, intelligent kindness if any of you have read it, it's the best book ever by penny campling and john ballard and there's a line in there that says it's easy to forget the appalling nature of the day-to-day -day work that most of our nurses do the stench of human flesh and i think it is easy to forget those nurses around there have the job that they do and actually unless we address their needs and maybe they needed to talk maybe their yeah, defense yeah. mechanism was sitting around and actually having a coffee with their peers now of course they shouldn't be leaving patients unattended but then the system needs to provide enough nursing staff yeah. in order that they can take their time out in order to have it, it, it is about the space and time to be able to get in touch with the difficulties and the challenges and, and some of the real emotional labor that it involves mm. but it's also about recognizing the positives and and, and celebrating yeah. those and the fantastic work that people do day I, in I day out and honestly i go out and about and i see some just wonderful nursing and doctoring and you know and all other professions you do see some fantastic stuff and I think we're not good enough yeah. at celebrating and valuing that and saying to people what you did today was just fantastic no I'm sure you're right now I'm going to bring in Adrian here who um, who has um, been talking to Midlands Partnership Foundation Trust now, they got the highest return on their staff survey, didn't they? Uh, that's right. They were right near the uh, the top. And I've been speaking to Alison Bussey. She's the chief nurse at Midlands Partnership. That was a merger of Staffordshire and Stoke-on-Trent and South Staffs and Shropshire. A bit of a mouthful. They had uh, made the challenges that all trusts have. Uh, they had poor morale. They realised that they weren't supporting their staff and saw that it was key to actually a good performance and ultimately good outcomes for patients. So, you know, what did they do? Uh, they gave uh, greater access uh, uh, to counselling. They recognised that there were some traumatic situations that staff were presented in, both their work, but also things like disciplinary proceedings, uh, which in themselves they said uh, could be scary and negative. They revised all their policies and procedures uh, to take into account the health and well-being of staff 
who were going through their, uh, those processes. And organisationally, they have a good leadership. Uh, the workforce uh, development lead uh, sits on the board and has this uh, workforce well-being as, uh, as their, their, their main target. So uh, workforce well-being is embedded in all senior leaders. Uh, they have regular listening into action events trying to engage staff, but not only just engaging them in, in what the trust should be doing, but actually empowering them to go away and find solutions them, themselves. And I think this is the, all the reviews that I've done, empowering staff, leaders not actually saying this is actually how it is, but enabling others to make decisions, freeing people up is absolutely key. So, I mean, the, the, the clear message is from them, you need clear values, values need to include staff being the most important asset that you have. Uh, money is important, but if you get the staffing right and the morale right, the money tends to, to flow. Uh, a strong culture around lean management is again really important. Training in QI, again empowering the front line to make decisions and to look at things as they really are. Really are. Um, and say leaders not making decisions but actually empowering others uh, to, to do that. And actually one thing that um, uh, Alison said to me, I think I wrote it down incorrectly, I don't know whether we've coined a new term, uh, that they had a, a strong view that uh, no, no health without mental health applies to staff as well. Actually I wrote it down as no help without <laughs> mental health. I wonder whether that's a, the new, a new uh, we jointly uh, coined that, uh, that, that term. But it's, uh, uh, I think one of the things that I've heard from everybody that's been, been speaking here is, the need for teams to get together, but out of a formal process. I mean, I, I work for Devon Partnership Trust, I work in secure services, and every morning we have what we call a zoning meeting. And we actually discuss every single patient very briefly. Is, are there any particular issues to do with those patients that we all need to be aware of? But it, uh, nobody writes anything down. We actually change the zoning if we're particularly worried about a particular patient, we might actually put them in a red zone uh, so that everybody's aware. But it, the purpose of it is really everybody in the team getting together. And I see lots of teams where you may have one formal meeting a week or a fortnight, yeah. but mostly people don't get together and just discuss how they are. I always start those meetings by saying, well, you know, how is everybody today? And it, I think it brings some of the tension out and it makes everybody feel that they're genuinely in a team together. So, so basic human engagement and this is why I worry about a lot of these reports that we have and yet more of reports it boils down to what you want in your own family when you walk through the door in the evening what sort of day did you have yeah. and basic communication and I think this is why we're making it so complicated somebody said it's fluffy stuff it's not fluffy stuff you should never let the sun set on an argument you should never let the sun set on a young man who's been assaulted three times in his first job basic and we can put all forms of metrics all forms and wrap it up and this is where I worry that, that we've sort of lost we've lost it in the NHS I mean there are pockets of very very good practice but it shouldn't be pockets of good practice it should be right across the board okay so I mean I entirely I entirely agree with with, with what you've all said about you know empowering people on the front line you know making sure that if, if somebody's been assaulted that you really have the right sorts of interventions to help them get through that and deal with that sort of trauma and so on. But what, what do we do about people within the health service, you know, doctors, nurses, who've got serious mental health problems, who 
bipolar, addictions, that that kind of thing. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm going to have to sort of disappear fairly soon. But can I just say that there was a time? So my service has about two hundred doctors with bipolar disorder, and there was a time when it was assumed that doctors with bipolar couldn't work. Now, around 25% of them, when they come to us, are not in work, and around 75% of them, once we've been treated and we, we provide what's called wraparound care, so we work with local teams, are at work. So given the right support, given the right treatment, given the right workplace environment, doctor with bipolar disorder can work in a, in a normal, normal hurly-burly of, of, a, of a job and doesn't require really anything more than you do for any other uh, member of staff. The idea that they're going to uh, put patients at risk, we have not had a single doctor with bipolar put patients at, at risk. With respect to addiction, uh, again, we have vast numbers of doctors with addiction who work. Clearly, there are some risk specialties. You need to make sure if you're in a, a safety critical area, like anaesthesia or emergency medicine, that actually you're safe to practice, you're working with the opiates. But again, given the right treatment, and about 80 to 90% of our doctors with addiction are abstinent, which is sustained uh, sustained by five years. So we can tell a workplace uh, a, a employer that if a doctor is absent at six months, the likelihood is they'll have a lifelong abstinence because most people relapse within the first three weeks uh, of treatment. So serious mental illness should not preclude you. We've even got doctors with schizophrenia, with paranoid schizophrenia, which has never been picked up. Now, it's harder for a doctor with paranoid schizophrenia, and on the whole, they don't do very well in the workplace, but nevertheless, there are it, there are things that they can do. So I think it's important that we do have specialist services that can build expertise for all staff to be able to retain this very important group of doctors in the workplace. All, all for now, I know you've got to go, Claire, because you've got to see uh, our great leader. I've got to see Simon Stevens. Yes, indeed, never indeed. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to uh, ask Neil... Um, do you have any, in your former role in the GMC, do you have any concerns about the fact that um, Claire's service actually um, uh, maintains confidentiality? Um, and, uh, you know, th there are obviously significant risks that if it's not known that someone's got a, a substance misuse problem, um, things could go wrong. So uh, th there's always a tension, isn't there, between uh, the, the, the doctor-patient confidentiality risk and then there's a question of patient safety. Uh, patient safety has to trump, ultimately. Um, uh, the, the, so, and uh, Claire's not here to defend herself and so on, so <laughs> she'll be careful how I word this. But I, I actually think that the, it's the, 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 the practitioner programme has been uh, a, a hugely beneficial thing. We worked very closely with it when we were at the GMC and we campaigned only partially successfully I have to say for it to be rolled out but also not confined to doctors uh, even as a doctor's regulator we could recognize the inequity in that in that uh, process so I think I think the service has been really good it is about making judgments which all doctors have to do around the safety of, uh, and doctors have that view about patients more generally, of course, about the safety of the public in relation to that, and ultimately the safety uh, of, of the public, I think, must uh, uh, must uh, trump, as it were, uh, any confidentiality around that. But you have to handle that really carefully. So if as a doctor you were, for example, if I give a different example through DVLA and driving, 
um, you, you're, you're in a position where it is on the onus on the individual themselves to report the fact that they can't, that they're, they're no longer fit to drive. It's not your job to phone the DVLA. But ultimately, if you then saw that individual having told them that they shouldn't be driving, driving past, or we would have said, well, you need to summon them back in and say, stop it. And if you don't stop it, I will now break. You know, one thing is countermanding the other. And I think the same applies. And, and any any of you who have been involved in mental health, that, that is one of the issues which you constantly have to face. But on the whole, I think the idea of providing a specialist service for health professionals is justified. I mean, I think there's always a, a slight embarrassment about, well, you're providing this good service for this lot, why aren't you providing it for the rest of the public? And I think that you, you can, however, justify that in terms of what you're expecting these people to do in the workplace, and, it, and it's orientated around that. Uh, and I think you can justify that both in the retention of staff and in the particular pressures that they're under. And as a good employer, I don't see why we shouldn't do that. I would urge other employers also to think about it. You, you mentioned that the fact about small, I think for small employers, there is a difficulty. Uh, and e even at, at a trust level, in a way, Clare Service is a specialist practice which serves the whole of London, you know, it's vast. So I think actually having regional kind of base things are probably for some of this very specialist stuff are probably the right answer. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's fair to say that, you know, what's, what's different about doctors and nurses to say some other, you know, working in a factory or whatever else, is obviously the day-to-day -day, uh, exposure to people who've, got severed limbs or or from our point of view mental health that that it's it's, it's like swimming in a river of, of human misery quite often to be frank um you know, yeah and, and also that you you're still you're you are at the cusp uh, in doctors nurses other health professionals of life death decisions so some of your decisions to do something it's very acute in medicine but it also applies in lots of nursing decisions as well so your decision can make a difference for the whole of somebody so you're in some ways the kind of decisions you're making the kind of pressures yeah. you described that yeah, yeah. Uh, young man under are are just enormous and and, and, and interestingly he was saying in a ward environment he felt it um, still relatively contained because there was a handover at the end of a shift to another team of people and, and he was not leaving people on their own and he was saying his anxiety or his thoughts about working in the community was it's much more autonomous than you're working and I can remember as a community mental health nurse you know there were days when you go home at the end of the day think have I done enough yes. is, there, is there anything I've missed should I have called someone and, and it, you take it home with you. For and, and I think if you take something like general practice, where um, 30 or 40 years ago, if you missed, uh, for example, a breast cancer diagnosis and you didn't make a referral, it might not have made much difference, frankly, to that individual and their prognosis. You miss it now, then you're potentially condemning that person to death when in fact if you got the treatment early it, so they could be cured so the, the bag of tricks becomes more but so do so the decisions become more vital and I think in mental health and in other areas our ability to do good things has increased but that actually ironically increases the pressure on the profession okay now we don't have a huge amount of time left but there's one group that does bother me which is trainees um, you just hear all too often that trainees, not just in medicine but in nursing too, and I'm sure in the allied health prof professions, um, that they, they, for some reason, they get a particularly bad deal. They get, you know, if there's bullying, they get a bit more bullying than other people get. 
if there's you know if we're going to ignore people's unhappiness we'll ignore theirs for certain what what who should be doing stuff about this should this be trust should it be the, the royal colleges should it be nhs confederation should it be <laughs> So, um, if you're asking me, I, I think that, that everybody has a there are risk of saying everybody has to do something. There is a particular problem with medicine. I think there's been a, a, a detachment, which meant that employers were not uh, aligned with or connected with their trainees in the way that they probably were in the past. And there are advantages in moving to the system that we did, but. I remember a chief exec running a good trust who told me he was personally shocked by how his organisation treated the doctors in training and it was a result of the industrial dispute which was um, sort of just a thing that people danced around. I think there were lots of more underlying things in the contract. Uh, but he was shocked at just the basic stuff of not providing lockers for his, you know, the stuff because they were regarded as itinerant people who came and went. And I, I know a lot of work has been going on in this. I think a lot more needs to be going on. And I look at my own daughter, who's a, a solicitor, and the idea that her firm would treat somebody who they regard as, you know, the, the, somebody who's going to be in a leadership role and all the rest of it in that way, they, they just wouldn't recognise it. And we need to wake up and do that. And that means not just uh, medical directors, it means the whole organisation has to recognise this is an absolutely critical group. And I imagine, but I'm, I'm not sure enough of the nursing story, but again, having gone to universities and lots of good things happened in that way, again, there's this sometimes that feeling of detachment. I think, I think, I think for nursing and medics, there's an issue of belonging. Where do you, where do you yeah. belong? I think nurses, nursing is probably better at it than medicine. From what we see, I think medics get treated appallingly. Um, for nursing students, I think they have a personal tutor at university, they have a mentor in their clinical placements, and I think there is a lot more support available to them. Uh, but I think sometimes when they're in placements in trust, they're not quite sure whether they belong to that trust, and I think some trusts are better at making them feel part of their system than others. Hey, so, what about you, psychiatrists? Well, the, as you know, our Psychiatric Trainees Committee launched a supported and valued programme. And again, when they asked their members, asked the trainees, like I spent yesterday evening uh, in a pub with our psychiatric trainees. I'm going back from here to, to the mess which we have within the uh, our conference to, the uh, to uh, <laughs> face the music. Well, if that if necessary. But what, what do they want? They want the basics. If you ask them, they say supportive seniors, protected teaching, proper teamwork, yes, good work-life balance, flexibility, but also facilities as well. Just the, you know, the basic facilities, a desk if you cycle to work or run to work, a shower. So it, it comes back to, to basic human kindness, people saying hello to you, asking how you are. And I think the esteem in which uh, mental health generally is held is also really important. I think that, uh, and I, I think actually that has that has improved. Mm. And I think if you feel good yeah. about what you're doing, yeah. it, it's a very good start yeah. to a positive culture. I mean, it, it has improved, but I mean, I, I've 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 asked this of junior doctors. Um, if you had three months off, how would you feel about going back and saying, "Well, that was because of my addiction," or "That was because of my bipolar"? By comparison to saying, oh, "I had chemotherapy." Mm. And they all say, oh, I'm happy about the chemotherapy. I'm not that happy about saying, 
I had a bout of hypomania or yeah. or my cocaine addiction took over or you know what I mean? It's sort so, of but, but we undoubtedly need to do a lot more about this. So we're we're increasingly employing peer support workers, people with lived experience to work in our workforce and absolutely right and proper and they bring a real different set of skills and abilities and that's fantastic. But we're still and we were talking about this just last week in, in the Morsley actually, we've still got staff on our books who we know have personal lived experience um, but uh, are not able or willing to, to talk about it openly and will often be disciplined if they, if they do and, and that's, there's something wrong there, we've got to sort that out. No, listen, I, I think this has been a very, very important discussion. I do think, um, you know, for chief execs, medical directors, directors of nursing and mental health out there, I think a much, much bigger focus on this is really, really important. We are not going to be able to del deliver on the long-term plan and expand up the workforce unless we keep the ones we've got. As you said, Neil, you know, it's not just a question of the tap, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the drain at the bottom as well. Um, and how we look after people. And as I think we've said, just trying to sum up a bit here, um, you know, maybe chief execs and medical directors need, need to think about having a non-exec on every board that is responsible for workforce and mental health of the workforce and so on. That we need to be getting reflective practice back into, uh, into what we do and reliable supervision. Um, as Claire said, paying attention to the basic human communications, basic human interactions um, and, and teamwork, etc. So I think it's been really important. And, and just, just to let people down the line know, um, Ian Tejodine from the Tavistock and Portman said, do tell people about the Pearson report, meeting the challenge of reducing stress and building resilience in the NHS workforce. So please, please do uh, have a look at that. Now, uh, we have come to the end. Um, we, we are, next time, we're not, we're not gonna meet in, uh, in August, but we will be in September. Um, and we're going to be looking at quality improvement in mental health. Um, and I think we'll be joined by Amar Shah, who's leading the quality improvement work at the Royal College. So that just leaves me to thank uh, our panel guest today, Dr. Claire Garada, um, who, who's not in the room right now, um, <laughs> Professor Alan Simpson, Neil Dixon, and Adrian James. Thanks very much, and see you again. Great. Sorry, I got your name wrong the first few times. That must happen quite often. Uh, well, yes, it's happened. We discussed it before, and then I, <laughs> my my wires got entirely mixed up. Well, actually, the BBC was fine because I just misspelled um, my name on the scripts. Right. And I was on the radio. Once again, yeah. television is more difficult because they, they, they put it on the they put it on the screen. But once everybody knew it, by the time I'd been there 16 yeah. years, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a big curse my parents. Now, I have an idea, actually, about this um, format, which I think is great. Um, have you thought of using Slido? What's that? So Slido is that you get, everybody gets an app, and that means that as you're listening, you can put in a question, right. which would then appear yeah. here. 
So at least they have a degree. They don't need to be able, so you don't yeah. need to slow down because I can understand the flow of anybody yeah. going in, whatever. But Slido would not ask to say, uh, actually, I thought Neil Dixon was talking complete rubbish. Yeah. Why don't we, whatever? Yeah. And you, you could then you can choose what you take and yeah. say, oh, John from whatever has said, or they can send it anonymously. We, we started to use it with staff meetings because we have a, we're a small organisation, but we have five five sites, I think, um, and. It's interesting, actually. A lot of them are anonymous. The questions—they're not—they're not hugely challenging, but people yeah. don't want to make a big thing about it. No. Uh, but it might—it just might That's be a way. That's a very good idea because Kings Fund uses Slido. Yeah. Yeah. What we have is uh, we've got the email, so we used to have a lot of um, co- uh, questions coming yeah. in by email, but then it slowed down as the network got bigger yeah. because of the anonymity. Yeah. Well, Slido allows you to do it anonymously. Yeah. So, anyway, okay. so no, that would be a, a, a big, a good move. Um, listen, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. I'm not here in September. I will be on my bike in the Alps. Okay. Can you I said I'd do a pre Can't you dial in? Well, I can dial in. Yeah, <laughs> you can dial in from your bike. Uh, <laughs> we hear any crashing sounds may may in the background. Be stressed, that I'll be feeling stressed. <laughs> <laughs> She's much fitter than I am. Thanks for